Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is Knife Perspective, episode number 027, Questions on Knife Steel with Laren Thomas of Knife Steel Nerds. How are y'all doing today? Doing pretty good, Dan. We're, uh, I'm excited to talk with Laren about uh, a bunch of engineering-related stuff. Yeah, I'm excited too. Uh, I saw you, uh, you did a couple of... Uh, April uh, 2020 uh, related knives in the shop. I did the uh, the hemp handles are in full production now. Nice. Yeah. Um, had a buddy of mine who's uh, law enforcement was coming by the shop for lunch, and he walked in and looked at me and just said, "Dan, what are you doing? I'm, I'm grinding handles." He's like, "Grinding handles? I can't be here. What 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 were you thinking?" I'm like, "What do you mean?" He goes, "What do I mean? It smells like a skunk in here." Like, oh, oh, no, dude, really? <laughs> it's handles, I promise. I wind up having to go over to the grinder, put one of the handles on the grinder, and hand it to him. And he's like, whoa, 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 stop right there. Wow. So they are, it is industrial hemp. There's no THC whatsoever. But uh, in every other way, they are they are 420 series handles. Gotcha. Nice. We've been, I've been uh, working on trying to get some of my orders done and make a run towards the blade show finish line. Uh, still, uh, I'd be in a lot more hurt if it was still in June, but luckily they moved it out. If you haven't heard to, uh, August, uh, is it seventh through the ninth now? Yep. Uh, you know, we need to work out, maybe we do a show from, uh, from the booth or, um, I don't know, try to do the pit. It's going to be impossible because it's so loud, mm-hmm. but, Maybe we need to record an episode from uh, a table or a booth. Yep. If we can make that happen, we should try. We talked about a special guest that uh, doesn't have a computer, only uses an iPad. So maybe we can try to get that person on. Uh, I actually have him confirmed. Excellent. I'm glad to see or hear that he would be there. Yep. So that's that's what we call a radio tease. So you guys will have to keep in touch. So uh, they got the sponsors of the podcast, Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives, and you can find our knives at Old Town Cutlery, Knife Center, and The Knife House. So check those fine dealers out, and uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're excited to have those people. For shout-outs, Tom Stone from Beyond Woods Products, he did a stay-at-home fade series. Uh, 20 different colors all poured together in resin. Super cool uh, handle material. I think some people were sleeping, and I actually snagged the big block oh, uh, from from that run. So, gonna hold on f- to that one for a little bit. Uh, not exactly sure what I'm gonna make with it, but Tom Tom makes uh, great stuff. Him and his his crew over there at Beyond Woods Products. Uh, if you uh, don't uh, have any of their shock wood or different stuff like that, make sure you check that stuff out. It's uh, it's really beautiful. And then uh, we have uh, Rick Dunkerley, I believe is how you say his last name, on Instagram. It's Rick 
Dunkerley, D-U-N-K-E-R-L-E-Y. There'll be a link in the show notes to him. Uh, He made what he's calling a Model 13 folder. It's a Damascus blade and bolsters and had some really, really unbelievable file work on the back spine. Uh, That was a super cool folding knife. And uh, Carrie Hudson of pitcher.perfect.blades on Instagram took some spectacular photos, uh, composite shot uh, on that of that knife. Uh, so if you need any pictures taken, uh, make sure you check out picture.perfect.blades and uh, give Rick a, a follow because he's really doing some some really cool stuff with folding knives and uh, Damascus and different stuff like that. Uh, and if it's file work that caught your eye, it's got to be impressive. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did some really good stuff on that uh, particular folder. You ready to ready to get the interview going? Uh, let's do this thing. All right, uh, Laren, uh He is uh, of the knifesteelnerds.com on Instagram, knifesteelnerds too. He's a metallurgist, has a PhD, and is a really nice guy. And love looking at all this stuff. And if you're a, a knife uh steel nerd uh that is the website for you because there is a ton of good uh engineering behind all the stuff that's on there so laren let's start off with where you were born and where you grew up Uh, i was born in las vegas nevada uh lived there until i was eight and then we moved to panaca nevada which is about 160 miles north uh, oh, my dad is Devin Thomas. He's known for making Damascus and to some extent for making knives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and making Damascus is hot work and Las Vegas gets pretty hot in the summer. And my dad's a big guy. So, you know, he was he was dying of sweating just about. So he's looking for somewhere cooler. And he chose Panaca, which is uh, in the middle of nowhere. It's a town at the time of about 700, maybe it's almost up to a thousand now. I'm not sure how much it's grown in that much time, but it was tiny. Oh, you know, there uh, was no McDonald's, no Walmart, no, no movie theater. That's for sure. We had a restaurant that was outside of town. If you drove a mile out of it, uh, but then it shut down. Uh, We also had a gas station a mile out of town. Oh, uh, one time we had a traffic light, but it was temporary while they worked on the bridge out of town. So I made sure to drive <laughs> my car out to the temporary traffic light so I could experience big city living. <laughs> nice. That's funny. That's very cool. I I listened to you a couple on a couple other podcasts, the the Knife Junkie and Bladeology, and I heard you uh, tell other kids that your dad was famous. Uh, that really, uh, really made me chuckle. Uh, I really like that. Uh, what was it like uh, going to, to knife shows and stuff as a kid with your with your dad kind of having the notoriety that he did with Damascus? Yeah, well, my dad had already prepared me well, telling me how famous and well-known and good at making Damascus he was. So n- none of the praise from other knife makers was a surprise. Uh, I, you know, I'm joking to some extent, but <laughs> you know, we, we we knew what he was doing and and that his his product was you know popular and people liked it and liked the quality and everything. Uh, so the the knife makers would show up at the house from time to time. I remember knife makers staying at our house even a few times, especially once we were in Panaca because 
there was literally just nowhere to stay around. So they'd have to stay at our house. Uh, mm. You know, they, they'd see all my siblings. There are six of us. So there's a lot of kids. It was not a very large house. It was a pretty old house. So the garage in the backyard making Damascus was bigger than the house. So, uh, mm. you know, they'd come and stay and see all of the kids running around, uh, you know, eat some of my mom's cooking and watch my dad forge out some Damascus. And by the time I was 12 or 13, my dad took me to uh, hammer in at Rick Dunkerley's house in Montana. Uh, and so I saw a bunch of knife makers and Damascus makers there and, you know, saw my dad interacting with them. Uh, it probably wasn't until a few years later when I started going to knife shows that I gained a little more interest in knives. So I think the first one I went to was the Vegas show because that was pretty close by and it was a pretty decent size show at the time. I'm not sure what it's like now. It's probably pretty good. Yeah, I don't think it's gotten smaller. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was a good show. There were a lot of knife makers there. Uh, and what, what intrigued me there that I didn't see as much at the hammer in was just all of the knife makers, you know, actively selling things. The hammer in was more collaborative and sharing techniques and talking about how to sell knives, make knives. Uh, but the, the shows was more of an active sales type thing. So, you know, you can walk around the show and, and all the guys are selling their knives and, and everybody has a different style. So, you know, there's slip joint folder makers that are very traditional and, and offering a product to a certain category of people versus tactical knives, which is looking for a whole different segment of people a lot of times. Uh, you know, some of these different categories of knives don't even cross over that much in terms of who's buying them and who's selling them. Uh, then, you know, there's forging bladesmiths that, that have their own group and kitchen knife makers were basically unheard of uh, at that time. So when I was a teenager, I mean, there were one or two Japanese bladesmiths that would come over for certain shows and American knife makers would make a kitchen knife here or there. But kitchen knives have really exploded over the past like 15, 20 years, at least in the U.S. Ten years ago, when I started my apprenticeship, I could not find anybody in the U.S. making kitchen knives that I could apprentice with. Yeah, I, I believe it. And w when you would find guys making kitchen knives, you know, you could tell they didn't really know how to do it. <laughs> uh, you know, they'd be tactical knife guys trying to make a kitchen knife and, and you know, just not making them so they would cut well. Yeah, the geometry is entirely different. Yeah, so it's not that the that those guys didn't know how to make a good knife, but you know they hadn't seen good examples of what what a really good kitchen knife would be, and so they they just didn't really know what it needed to be. Yeah, when I uh, when I decided to start making kitchen knives, I was lucky enough to have some chefs in Atlanta to work with, and chefs are not known for being overly gentle or polite. Mm -hmm. And some of the soul-crushing feedback I got back on my first couple of attempts, um, it, I can't imagine what they would have said to somebody they didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, but it took it took almost two years of R and D, just back and forth in a kitchen, for me to learn what a working kitchen knife needed to be the the ratios at the at the heel. Um, blade geometry, it was, it was completely relearning the craft. Yeah, that's awesome. So, Laren, 
going to all those uh, knife shows, uh, what was your what was your first knife? I imagine it was uh, you had the possibility of getting some pretty neat stuff. Oh, my first knives would have been you know ones that I bought along with my father. I don't even remember what my first knife was. The first higher end knife I remember would have been a Microtech folder. And I don't even know what model it would have been. Uh, That's a pretty strong early knife. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, my dad didn't like bad knives. And, but it wasn't long after that that my dad made me a slip joint for Christmas, though. And so, you know, that thing had a Damascus blade and Mokume bolsters and probably a stag handle or something. Uh, so tragically, I lost both of those knives because on a trip to the blade show, uh, in my bag, I had some contact solution and it leaked out and it corroded out both of those knives really bad. Oh, bummer. That's so, a heartbreaker. It, it was it was really sad. Oh, I, I felt very irresponsible. You know, they should have had that contact solution well isolated away from the knives. So it's a mm-hmm. cautionary tale. So uh, one of the other questions that we we ask all of our guests is, uh, how did you meet your wife Jessica, and where does it rank on the Dan Kyle scale? And if you're un- if you're not aware of that, for the listeners, Dan met his wife and asked her out at her grandmother's wake, and I met my wife on eHarmony. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Jessica and I went to the same middle school and high school. So she says that. Uh, we met in middle school, which I have no memory of. Uh, But I do remember her in high school. So the the town I lived in was so small that there are multiple towns that went to one high school. So she was in a neighboring town. And uh, we were friends in high school. Uh, She was in band. I was in band. Uh, You know, we did other activities. Uh, We were in a couple plays or musicals together. And so I tried to get her to date me. She didn't go for it. Uh, then uh, <laughs> later in college, when I, I transferred to University of Nevada, she was she was there already. And uh, that time I was successful in getting her to date me. So. Very nice. You got that, that engineering cred behind you then, huh? <laughs> well, when you have no degree, you don't have much credibility <laughs> yet, especially with the ladies. What yeah, I heard was a story of perseverance. You didn't take no. Oh, yeah. You tried and tried and tried again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, story of my life. <laughs> so uh, you talked a little bit about uh, the high school there. Um, there's a, a really good blog post that you have on on uh, the uh, Knife Steel Nerds about how, how you kind of got to where you were. But uh, one of the things that really resonated with me in talking with people is uh, that you kind of struggled some in math and uh, different subjects in high school. How did you determine that uh, you wanted to kind of continue your education as an engineer? Yeah, that it's a, a little bit convoluted story. Uh, but, you know, so with the knife shows, I'm learning about the knife makers, seeing what they're pitching. And what really interests me are the guys that are saying they use the best steel or secret steels or secret heat treatments or, uh, you know, the old classic ones where they, they quench the blade multiple times or, you know, only in the full moon or, you know, wh- whatever it is. Magnetic North. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm i hearing all this stuff. And, you know, there's guys with fillet knives that are bending them 90 degrees and telling me about how it's because of their special steel and heat treatment and stuff. 
And so, you know, I talked to my dad about those kinds of things. He he answered some questions. Uh, John Verhoeven's book, Metallurgy for Bladesmiths, that is now Steel Metallurgy for the Non-Metallurgist, that came out uh, at the end of when I was in high school. But uh, he had sent a couple draft chapters to my dad because they had interacted at a hammer-in or something. And uh, so I was able to read early copies of that book. So I had a lot of interest in in metallurgy that the steel and, and engineering aspect of, of knives was very interesting to me. And, you know, my dad, he, he developed his own Damascus patterns and how to make stainless Damascus. And he had interest in steel and things. So he was a good person to, to talk to about that kind of stuff. Uh, but as far as wanting to pursue that as a career, it really didn't occur to me. So, I mean, I, I was in the school in the middle of nowhere and, uh, I did pretty good in school, but you know, my, my class had about 40 people and I was number five in, in the end in terms of GPA. Uh, so it's not like I was the top of the class and my class only had 40 kids. So, mm-hmm. and I didn't excel in subjects that would lead you to a path in engineering. So, you know, math in particular, I never did that great in. Uh, I had the same math teacher from eighth grade through my senior year, and I did fine in that class, but I was getting B's and C's, and, you know, I just didn't show any great aptitude for math. And, you know, calculus, that was something that, like, super geniuses did. Uh, There were no AP courses or anything in my school. And I didn't know anything about college. Neither of my parents went to college. So engineering was not on my radar. I've got to admit, you're the first engineer I've talked to that said, I didn't really do that well in math. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I didn't. So uh, then, so I didn't know anything about college. My, my parents didn't know anything about college. So, you know, I took the ACT late. I applied to a few schools that were nearby. I didn't even look into schools. I didn't visit any of them. I didn't know anything about where to go or what to do. Uh, So I went to a junior college in southern Utah, which was uh, about 100 miles away from from Panaca, where we were living. And uh, my dad's identical twin brother was, was living there. So there was some family nearby that made me feel more comfortable. And I actually lived at their house, which was in a way a mistake because I was not mature enough to live in someone else's house yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I have no idea what it would have been like me staying in a dorm because I could barely handle living with a family still. <laughs> that probably helped save some money, though, for that that first uh, deal there. Yeah, definitely helped save money. You know, I was going to a junior college and uh, staying with relatives. So the costs were really low. Uh, which was nice because I didn't know what I was doing. I was mostly spinning my wheels. It's not that I picked a major and said, okay, this is the direction I'm going in. I just thought, you know, oh, I'm done with high school. So the next step is college. So let's go to college, you know. But I bet it was awkward sneaking chicks out of your uncle's house. (laughs) Well, I wasn't very smooth with the ladies, so didn't have to worry about that too much. I was in the same boat with you. (laughs) Uh Engineers aren't known for being smooth with the ladies. (laughs) <laughs> and I am no, no exception. <laughs> so, uh, so at junior college, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I signed up for math, biology, you know, I don't even remember what English, because those are the classes that I took in high school. So I'm like, well, I should continue on with those classes. They seem to be the ones I'm supposed to take. Uh, and I retook pre-calculus. Uh, I don't know why I retook it. 
I think I could have skipped it if I wanted, but because I didn't do that well in it, I thought, you know, I can retake this and learn it a little better and then I'll, I'll be more prepared for the rest of college. So in that pre-calculus class, the teacher, his name was Mr. Bowler, and he was a lawyer professionally and he would teach on the side, uh, but he didn't have a master's or PhD in math. And so they were never going to make him a full-time professor. And uh, at the time, they were trying to uh, be accredited to be a university instead of a junior college. So they really cared about how many PhD professors they had. Uh, but so he would always tell us that we needed a markdown on all of our assessment forms at the end of the semester that we really wanted Mr. Bowler to be a full-time professor. Uh, <laughs> so he really liked math. Uh, I assume he also liked being a lawyer. I don't know. But uh, he was a very charismatic teacher. And... Uh, I just understood everything he said. So every class, I just, I I knew everything that he was talking about, where it just always seemed kind of hazy and fuzzy before, you know, like the teacher would go over some problems and be like, oh, okay, I, I think I, I got it. And then you'd go to the homework and you're like, I, I, these, these problems are different. I don't know how to do these. <laughs> uh, where he would teach a class and I could just breeze through the homework, every exam, I knew every question. And uh, he was just such a good teacher. He was so fun and, and easy uh, to understand that I just got it all. And so after that semester, uh, it really built my confidence. You know, like, what is it that I really want to do? Because, you know, I can do it. I, I breeze through this math class. I'm, I'm smart. I can do anything. Uh, and but then I took another detour because... Uh, my dad was having some some health problems, so he's diabetic, and uh, he was having some issues at the time, and he wasn't able to work for several months. So after my year at junior college, I lived in Panaka again for a year, and uh, with as few girls as I was getting at junior college, I was getting even fewer in Panaka, <laughs> where everyone my age was off at college or working somewhere, and uh, you know the only gr girls left are high school girls. So. Not exactly ideal. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, so I, the great thing about high school girls is I get older and they stay the same age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's stop Dan right there. You came back and uh, helped your dad some. What was it like working with your your dad in the shop? Uh, it was good and bad. I learned more about how his business was running. I also learned that I cannot live with my father anymore. Uh, just you know, getting a little older and being ready to go off and do your own thing, it it just it became more and more difficult trying to live with my parents. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, you know, it was I felt lonely uh, being in in Panaka with no friends around, and uh, you know, it was boring. Uh, but you know, I'd go every day and uh, I'd run surface grinders, grinding steel. I'd shear up. Uh, sheet steel that'll go into the Damascus and uh, you know it was just working every day it was kind of a grind uh, during that time I did become even more interested in knives uh, I made a couple kitchen knives during that time and I sold them and that was rewarding for a little while I thought maybe I would uh, you know make knives more often either full time or as a hobbyist maker or something mm -hmm. uh, that didn't really happen of course uh, so even though I was bored and a little frustrated, 
uh, you know, my my interest in knives only grew during that time. Of course, I was talking to my dad a lot about knives and steel and and everything. So I learned more about his business during that time. And I got more hands on time in the shop and learned how to make knives to some extent, though I can't call myself a knife maker. So during that time, I was kind of debating on what it was I wanted to do. You know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought my my big interest is in steel. You know, when when they came out with S30V from Crucible, that was this new cool steel uh, that was developed just for knives. And I was always really excited about that. I really love talking to the metallurgists at Crucible about steel and heat treating and how you make the best steel. And why don't you add more nickel to the steel? You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so during that year, you know, I spent more time on knife forums and talking to my dad and and uh, thinking about how how I did really well in math and, you know, like, hey, I can do I can go do a material science degree. You know, I can become a metallurgist and work on steel. You know, nothing's stopping me. Uh, and, and so I transferred from the junior college to University of Nevada to start on that. Very cool. So what was uh, one of your favorite uh, forge welding patterns that you and your dad and do you have a favorite pattern or? Yeah, I have patterns I like. Uh, you know, I had to stack up the steel uh, to make the different patterns because, you know, there's different ways of pattern manipulation. One is to start uh, with different different ways that you stack up the material. Uh, you know, you can think about mosaic Damascus where, well, you know, they'll even make pictures on the on the end of the bar by, you know, bending foil or or doing ball bearings with powder in it or, you know, creating different designs with how you affect the the makeup of of the steel before you forge it out. And the, the another primary way is then how you manipulate it uh, with forging or pressing or cutting and reforging uh, those kinds of operations. So uh, one of my favorite patterns is is spirograph, which is also one of the more painful ones to have to stack up for for later forging. Uh, so I know my dad was always proud of his spirograph pattern. Um, it's a little bit difficult to describe, but uh, there is an old, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a game or a craft activity, but with Spirograph, there's a gear uh, that goes inside a bigger gear and you put your pencil in one of the holes and you spin it around and you get kind of a swirling pattern where the lines go in and out of each other. And so that's what it's named after. And uh, there were people that would try to copy the pattern even because it was pretty striking. It looked a lot different than other styles of Damascus. It had a very unique look to it. Yeah. Uh, so th- that's one of my my favorites. It's occasionally, you'd see a guy come out with a pattern uh, that looked kind of like an ugly bastardized version of Spirograph. Like they tried to copy it, but you weren't quite successful. So I, I know it it stuck out to to some people, even other Damascus makers, and so that. That was a good one. I, I like Spirograph. Yeah, I think that's my the one that I most uh, associate with your dad. Um, seeing some of the other ones, there's so many other makers that kind of do the like random and the ladder and uh, some of the other ones, but that was one of the ones that I I thought was the most uh, most unique that I didn't see anybody else doing. Yeah, and I'm sure people have copied it now. You know, copying something is a lot easier than developing it. Uh, you see this complaint about a lot from people that that develop something and just for someone to copy it. And sometimes the person copying thinks they've really accomplished something great. Uh, you know, and it, it takes some skill and some knowledge to figure out how to replicate 
something, but developing and replicating are, are two different activities. Yeah. So I think in part, my dad built the the current Damascus steel business model of, you know, selling individual bars to customers. You know, there were people before him, uh, but in, he solidified a lot of things, uh, you know, like surface grinding bars and etching them so you could see the pattern before you buy the steel. Uh, of course, he, he was a forerunner for the stainless steel Damascus as well, wasn't he? Yes, definitely. He was one of the earliest to do stainless Damascus. Um, I don't know if he was the first, um, but he was definitely the first that was making it with any regularity and, uh, you know, selling it um, to knife makers. So he 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 worked on a lot of those things. And uh, and later he worked a lot in the area of of powder metallurgy. Well, not powder metallurgy, powder in Damascus, uh, which I wrote a whole article on the history of, of that. Uh, so, you know, he, he, he's a smart guy and he, he did some exciting things with Damascus. Yeah. The canister stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you, you got excited about, uh, all the metallurgy stuff, learning how the, how to manipulate some of the, the steel and forge welding. And then you, believe you decided to go back to, uh, continue your, your college degrees. Yeah. So I transferred to university of Nevada uh, because that was an in-state school. It was pretty inexpensive. And uh, they had a material science and engineering program, which is, is not the most common degree. If you look it up, there are, are not many schools that even offer it, much less a metallurgy degree. So I, I feel like I was pretty lucky that I was in Nevada because my parents had no money like to pay for me to go to school. Uh, so you know, there was an in-state school with material science. And not only was it an in-state school, but it was one of the cheapest in-state schools. Uh, so I was able to transfer and my GPA at uh, at the junior college was was pretty good. You know, it was junior college, so it wasn't it wasn't so bad. Uh, but as a transfer student, then I got better scholarships than I ever would have with my high school GPA and ACT. So I was able to go to an in-state school with material science uh, where I quickly learned that not every math teacher was as good as as Mr. Bowler, the the lawyer who teaches on the side. Uh, so. Uh, the kids at in engineering school, uh, University of Nevada, were were very smart. It seemed like they were a lot smarter than me. Uh, I, I think some other kids also struggled, uh, but I think you know you mostly keep it to yourself. You're trying to put on your game face and show you know what's going on, even when you don't. Uh, and so I I felt I felt out of place a little bit sometimes in engineering school. Uh, you know, though those kids had gone to big, nice high schools and, you know, they had good middle class parents that knew what college was about and what they were about to do. And they had taken the AP classes where they learned how to how to do college style studying. And so I, I had a lot of catching up to do, even though I'd done a year at junior college. OK. And then so what made you decide to once you got your I assume you got your bachelor's in material science there? Yeah, so I spent about four years there and got my bachelor's degree. Uh, so, you know, I was just going to class after class. Uh, you know, I thought I knew some things about metallurgy because of the reading I'd done and the arguing on knife forms and stuff about knife steel. Uh, but, you know, I learned that I didn't know that much about how materials and metallurgy works. Uh, when you go to materials school, you learn very quickly the word dislocation. Uh, because all mechanical behavior of materials is controlled by dislocations, or at least of metals. 
Uh, so, you know, like dislocations, what is this? Like, let's get past this introduction so we get into, you know, what chromium does to steel. And little did I know that I would spend the next four years talking about dislocations every single day. Nice. And so I got near the end of, of that program and I'm thinking about what I'm going to do, uh, you know, for my career. Uh, and, you know, just like when I was graduating from high school, I had not given it nearly enough thought. Uh, you know, my my big desire was to work on knife steel or to develop new knife steels. Uh, but Crucible had gone through a bankruptcy while I was uh, working on my bachelor's degree. Uh, and so, you know, it's just like, what am I going to do? Uh, plus, getting into R&D you know, with developing new new steel products, a lot of times you need a higher level degree. I emailed John Verhoeven, uh, who wrote the the book on metallurgy for bladesmiths, and asked him where to go. I also emailed a couple other professors I knew about, didn't really know them. Just, you know, emailed them, looked them up, and sent them an email. And they all told me that I should go to Colorado School of Mines, uh, which has a big steel research center there. So I called up the the head of the Steel Research Center and told him, you know, hey, you know, I'm the son of a Damascus steel maker and I love steel. I've done nothing but read about it the past several years. You know, I'm working on my bachelor's degree. I really want to come research steel. And, you know, he told me what I needed to do, which was to make sure my GPA ended up pretty good and start studying for the GRE. So I got off the phone and looked up what the GRE is. <laughs> Nice. And I assume you did pretty well in order to to go to the Colorado School of Mines? Well, I don't know how, how well I did. I I mean the the GRE, yeah, I did I did good. I I did fine. I studied really hard for that test. I think most people don't study that much for it as I think uh they they know that they'll do well. Or I did not know that I would do well. So I studied for several months for that that test because uh, I really wanted to go to Colorado School of Mines and, and study steel. So I, I worked really hard studying for that test. I did pretty good. Uh, my GPA was better than I thought. I, I thought that my GPA wasn't very good. I kind of avoided looking at it because I knew that I, I got a C in a couple courses uh, where I, if I had gotten a D, I would have had to retake them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I thought, you know, I was barely scraping by, but I got so many A's in other classes that the overall GPA looked fine for getting into grad school. So, you know, I made it into grad school. Very nice. What things were you most excited about when you were doing grad school? Uh, well, that's a good question. I was really excited about working with all the all the steel professors and, and with other students. You know, the program was really good because uh, we worked directly with, with steel companies. So the steel companies would sponsor the research center. They'd pay a fixed fee every year uh, to be a member of like the research group. So they would see the results of all of our our research. And uh, twice a year, we would do uh, presentations to our industrial mentors. So different metallurgists or or engineers from different car companies or steel companies uh, would come to to these presentations, and we would tell them everything we were working on and then they would tell us no that's wrong or no this is really dumb or don't you think you should look at this or no they, they were nice sometimes so <laughs> but uh so that was nerve-wracking a lot giving those presentations it was really useful though you know learning how to present uh scientific engineering research 
uh, to very intelligent people who will notice any any mistake that you make or anything you say that is is funny or incorrect. Mm. Uh, and the professors were were really good. They were top notch. You know, they they knew steel. That's why they were professors for the Steel Research Center or the Metallurgy Department at Colorado School of Mines, uh, which is a good engineering school. Mm. I probably would not have have gotten into it for my undergrad. As the it it can be pretty tough to get into. Apparently, yeah. I was lucky going in for grad school. Yeah, I work or where I work, we actually had uh, a person uh, interview that went to that college, and that was the first time I had ever heard of it. Um, just wasn't wasn't one of the colleges that was kind of on my radar, and it sounds like the coursework that they had and the the labs and stuff that they had were super useful and very uh good to get people some some actual hands-on engineering uh problem solving with actual tools yeah it was very hands-on especially in grad school i did experience some of what the the undergraduate work was like uh because i took a couple of those courses and also did you know acted as a teaching assistant for a lot of the labs but you know a lot of what i was doing was my own research so you know they've got a lot of high end equipment for for doing steel research uh you know doing specific heat treating experiments and and microscopy and all of that that stuff and it was very research and experiment based you know some schools will focus more on on computational predictions or modeling of things uh which is fine uh but my program was very focused on experiments. So I got a lot of hands-on experience while I was there, you know, doing a lot of the things. So now that I work on on knife steel nerds, none of that scared me because I'd already done a lot of my own experiments, uh, you know, setting up experiments before you do them, setting it up is as important as as getting it done. Uh, then performing all the experiments, then analyzing all of the information, then writing it up in a report and then making it into a presentation. Uh, getting it through my advisor, presenting it to industrial sponsors. Uh, so, you know, doing some experiments for knife steel nerds was not scary in the least. Uh, you know, I I knew generally what I needed to do, uh, but it was a tough school. Uh, uh, when you're working on a PhD, you have what's called a qualifying exam. Uh, some schools don't have them anymore. Uh, you know, some schools, they're a little bit different from each other. Uh, in my program, we had a very old school, very difficult qualifying exam. So there was an eight hour written exam uh, that was on any topic in metallurgy. Then there was a four hour written exam on a different day that was on a specific topic, which I chose kinetics and phase transformations. And uh, then there was also a two hour oral exam in front of professors where they could ask you any question and you had to be able to write on the board whatever they were asking about. Uh, you know, so basically anything they asked about, you had to be able to write up all of the equations related to it or derive equations that were related to it. So I studied way harder for that than even the GRE. I spent literally six months of nothing but studying for four to eight hours every single day for that exam. And it's probably the most difficult thing I've done. The, the, the PhD thesis defense itself was also nerve wracking, but I was way more worried about the qualifying exam. I would be too. <laughs> it sounds pretty intense. I can't imagine uh, being in front of some of the people that are as uh, highly educated on the subject they're asking you about that they literally know any little misstep of anything you say. Yeah, literally world famous steel 
metallurgists, you know, that have written papers and, you know, that have been cited hundreds of times. And, you know, you got to answer their questions without looking dumb. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I went from uh, barely passing my math classes in high school to to then trying to pass a Ph.D. qualifying exam like I'm a real smart person. You know, when you look back on it, it surprised that I did it sometimes. <laughs> so. Yeah, you persevered through a lot of a lot of stuff to to get what you uh, the end goal that you were looking for. Well, persevering makes it sound a little tougher than it was. You know, I wasn't uh, uh, scraping myself out of a third world country, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, it it took some work. And uh, if I hadn't been really focused on on some kind of end goal, you know, working in the steel industry, developing steel. I, I don't think I would have made it as easily as I did because, uh, you know, it it, it was a, a perfectly happy time. I think in general, I'm a happy person. I, I'm pretty content most of the time. Uh, but, you know, going to grad school, not making much money and and just day after day doing research and going to classes, it can it can wear on you after a while. So you have to be happy with where you are for you know, several more years. You work on your bachelor's degree for four or five years. You think it's never going to be over, and then you sign up for several more years. <laughs> nice. So now that you're uh, kind of done with all that, how do you balance all your your work life, your family, the knifestealnerds dot com, and all that uh, all that stuff? You said you had a couple kids too when we were talking before the show started. Yeah, it's not too bad. My wife only gets mad at me sometimes, <laughs> uh, but. Just, you know, my, I have my job, I have my kids, and my hobby is knife steel nerds, and that's about all I do. That That's a secret. You can't add a, another thing, or that would be too many things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I work 40 hours a week uh, developing automotive sheet steel. Uh, I come home, I spend time with my kids. Uh, you know, the kids go to bed at eight, and we watch a movie, and I go to bed. And uh, sometimes I squeeze in knife steel nerds. So usually on on the weekends, some evenings, you know, I'll do experiments in the garage, heat treating steel or using my new catcher machine or uh, prepping stuff uh, for a microscope that I'll use at work. Uh, You know, I have to be pretty uh, on top of it in terms of scheduling myself and and staying focused on one thing at a time, Uh, because if I get too many projects going, then I don't get any of them done. So basically, you know, I have to be laser focused on one thing at a time. If I'm doing doing microscopy on something, that's all I'm doing. And I'm not I'm not messing around on Excel spreadsheets about how to best optimize something. Uh, You know, I'm doing microscopy, I'm I'm polishing specimens, basically. And if I'm working on an article about CPM 154, that's all I'm working on. So, you know, if you just do one thing at a time, a few hours every week, you, you get a surprising amount done. You just you just mentioned Dan's trigger word. That's his favorite, one of his favorite steels. Oh, CPM one fifty four. There's some debate whether or not CPM one fifty four or S thirty five BN was handed down to us from the gods. I, I <laughs> uh-huh. so, I'm I'm still a one fifty four CM guy. I haven't quite uh, haven't quite convinced myself that the the powder metal version is. Uh, Oh, we're about to geek out over grain structure and carbides and <laughs> and you're you're going to be a convert. You're going to be right there drinking the Kool Aid with me. <laughs> it's it's a cost thing, man. I have, it hasn't quite uh, quite convinced me that it's worth the almost double the cost. Well, don't be so cheap. 
costs aren't so bad, the production costs do go up significantly. Yeah. I spend uh, a lot more belts and a lot more time on particle steel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk about wanna, what it is. Yeah. Wanna, let's, uh, get into the actual steel portion of the, uh, the podcast. How does the, the grain structure affect the steel specifically in knives? That was one of the, one of the questions we got from, or I got from quite a few people that I had talked to before the show started. Well, I know Jared covered a little bit of this, so uh, hopefully I can answer it just as good as he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there's some confusion about what grain structure in steel is. Uh, so, you know, you might hear people talking about it being a fine microstructure, a fine grain structure, but they're actually referring to multiple things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also grain in terms of directionality uh, in properties, and that is completely separate from grains in steel. So it, it can be confusing. So one one type of structure in steel is carbides. So carbides are compounds between carbon and another element like iron or vanadium or molybdenum. So these are hard particles that are found in steel and they they add to wear resistance because they're very hard and difficult to abrade. Uh, but they also re- reduce toughness because they're very hard and brittle. So they, they make it easier to break a piece of steel. Uh, so these carbides are just kind of located throughout uh, the steel. There's different analogies that people will use, like uh, you know, bricks in in a road, or or I forget what the other ones are. But h- however you need to imagine it, you know, there's a softer steel matrix, and then there's these carbide particles that are throughout the steel. These are very important to knife steels. Most knife steels have some amount of carbide in them. Uh, now, grains in steel are are completely different than anything I just said about carbides, and they are a little bit harder to describe without pictures. So in steel, you have all of these iron atoms and, you know, to have steel, you got to have iron and to have iron they're they're in in this repeating array uh, of of atoms. So all these atoms are bunched up together in in a close packed arrangement. So if you take a bunch of balls and you stack them up in like a little pyramid, you know, they've got to all stack together. Uh, so that they're close together. And materials and metals especially uh, will have atoms in different close-packed arrangements like that all stacked together. And so they'll have some kind of repeating arrangement that's all in one orientation. Uh, But steels have multiple grains in them. So the the orientation of of those, those atom arrangements will shift at different places in the microstructure. And the there's a boundary where that shifts, and uh, those are grain boundaries in the material. So the the steel is made up of lots of different grains, which is just a different orientation of of those atoms. So you know if you take your stack of atoms and you twist it, you know then you have a new orientation. And so where the orientation changes is a is where a grain is. So w- when you etch steel. Uh, with certain etchants, you can see all these boundaries within the steel, and those are where the crystal structure is shifting orientation. Uh, so again, that's really hard to describe uh, without without pictures. Um, when you're talking about the changes in grain, is that like as when colonies form, when they meet, they they create a boundary edge? Yeah. So 
steel doesn't really form like this, but if you imagine that you had liquid steel and there's just no no grains in it, no no repeating array of of atoms yet because they're all just floating around in in a liquid, uh, and then you started to form a new grain with a, a a structure, you know, a repeating structure in it, and there were multiple new you know nucleating areas uh, that then all you know eventually ran into each other and couldn't grow anymore. Uh, then, then that would get you a a crystal structure, a grain structure in a material. Mm-hmm. So again, it it it's hard to imagine. Uh, some people, uh, like in Verhoeven's book, he talks about uh, soap bubbles in in a in a bottle, um, or you know, if you you drink a a bubbly beverage, then there are bubbles that form. Uh, that's one way of imagining it. You can also etch out. Uh, individual grains of a material. And so you just get all of these, you know, kind of rocky looking uh, pieces of a metal uh, where they were all joined together. And uh, both carbides and grains can come in different sizes. So, you know, you see a lot of focus on grain size. Uh, Powder metallurgy steels are specifically made to reduce carbide size. Uh, So powder metallurgy steels, they can have fine grain size, uh, but they do not necessarily have a finer grain size. Uh, it's all about the carbide size uh, because carbides really affect toughness in knife steels. If the carbides are big, then the toughness goes way down. Toughness meaning resistance to cracking or fracture or chipping. Mm-hmm. And the bigger those carbides are, the easier it is to fracture a, a piece of steel. And so powder metallurgy is a technology dedicated to reducing the carbide size of of knife steel because that's usually the limiting factor for toughness. And- are usually larger than grain structures, correct? Uh, I would not say that necessarily. Uh, but uh, if a carbide is 10 microns big, that is a much bigger problem than if a grain is 10 microns big. Uh, so, you know, the the steel can can behave in a ductile manner, you know, with good toughness, uh, even if its grains are are relatively large, or at least medium size or medium fine. Uh, but if you've got big hard particles in the steel, then those just fracture very easily. Uh, let me try this then. Um, the window for carbides is usually larger than the window for grains. Like a an acceptable size of a carbide tends to be larger than the acceptable size of a grain. Or am I still misunderstanding? Yeah, I, I think that could be an accurate statement, uh, mm-hmm. but it, there is sometimes too much emphasis specifically on grain size, particularly from forging bladesmiths, where they, they're really worried about the thermal cycling that they're doing to get that grain size small. Because if you have grains and giant carbides, you still have crap steel. Yeah, uh, and and uh, when your grain size is fine... Uh, making it even finer will improve your properties, but you're not going from uh, basic boring steel to ultra super never breaks and never stops cutting steel. You know, you're talking about 10% or 20% improvements maybe. Uh, so, you know, I think there's more focus on it because of the influence of certain famous bladesmiths who who really were concerned about grain size and promoted the virtues of making it smaller. Uh, Metallurgists also care about grain size. They like developing heat treatments and forging treatments to make it smaller to try to improve properties. I think some of it's the education for 
knife makers and bladesmiths. Mm-hmm. Um, because early on, I heard all about grain structures, and I thought grains and carbides were all the same thing. It wasn't until yeah I started getting a little little deeper into metallurgy that I, that I understood the differences. So I think young bladesmiths get really focused on grains because they don't realize there's there's multiple structures going on. Yeah, and I won't point them out, but there is one influential bladesmith who wrote a lot of articles about refining grains, uh, and he he published a micrograph of some of his steel that he claimed had very fine grain size in one of his articles, and there were actually no grains or grain boundaries visible in the image, uh, n- not because his grains were very large, but because it's difficult to make them show up uh, without special etchants. It's pretty painful, actually, to get grain boundaries to reveal themselves in in steel. We're talking about structures, aren't we? Yeah, you can see them in a normal optical microscope. Really, the challenge is in getting them to appear with etching. Uh, but mm. so he, he was pointing out carbides in the micrograph saying, look how fine this structure is. So, you know, even after writing, you know, 100 articles about how he was refining grain size, he didn't even know what he was referring to. Mm. Yeah, coming back to it's, it's not what you don't know. It's, it's what you don't know that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that some of that stuff with forging would be because they can do the, the bend test and then look at the, the broken blade and kind of get an idea with it without looking under a microscope of if there's something grossly wrong with the blade. Right. Yeah. So if you have a, a brittle piece of steel, so this is best done from an as quenched piece of steel, uh, you know, meaning you heated it up hot, you austenitized it for hardening, you quenched it in oil or an air quench or something. So it's brittle because you haven't tempered it yet to increase the toughness. And if you snap it, uh, the, the steel will fracture uh, in a characteristic way that reflects the, the grain structure. Uh, you're not seeing individual grains, but the way that it fractures uh, relates to the grain structure. So if if you see kind of a rocky, shiny, well, shiny is not really the right word, uh, but anyway, a rocky appearance, then you have a large grain size. And if it's very smooth, then you likely have a a fine grain size. And so, uh, yeah, when you're you're starting to learn as a bladesmith, you know, one of the first things you're learning is how to cycle the steel and then then someone will demonstrate overheating a piece of steel and fracturing it and showing you how much bigger the grain size is. So it's kind of instilled in you early on, I think, a lot of times, like, look, this grain structure is really important. Uh, it, it might also come up more with forging bladesmiths because uh, with the low alloy steels that are commonly used, uh, the carbides all dissolve uh, at the forging temperature. And uh grains in the steel want to grow at high temperature uh, because they, they're kind of regions of high energy and the steel wants to get rid of as much grain boundary as possible. And it does that by growing the grains because the bigger they get, the less grain boundary area there is. Now, when you're at 2000 plus degrees and you have uh, no carbides present, the grains grow really fast. And so if you're not properly cycling the steel, uh, the grains are going to be big and your properties will be poor. Uh, So, you know, their goal is to make the steel better by forging uh, or at least to have the steel good and to enjoy forging out a knife uh, without without blowing up the grains and making the properties bad. 
Uh, so you have to learn how to control them as a forging bladesmith because it's easy for the grains to be big. Where, you know, if you're buying CPM 154 and heat treating it correctly, uh, even just based on the data sheet, your grain size is going to be fine. You don't really have to worry about it. Uh, and maybe we need to touch on this a little bit because you were talking about dissolving, about how carbon dissolves into iron. Mm-hmm. And I would also want to ask about if carbides are a solvent. Can you, um, can you add carbides and inc- increase your carbon content? Yeah, so on a really basic level, if you have uh, a steel with very low carbon content, uh, then there won't be much carbide in the steel. Uh, so, you know, if you, you buy a piece of steel from the steel company or the distributor, they give it to you annealed. Uh, in the annealed condition, there is as much carbide in the steel as there will be. And if you heat the steel up really hot, you can dissolve uh, those carbides. In simple steels, you can dissolve all the carbide. In high alloy steels, you can't dissolve them without melting the steel because they're so stable. And by dissolving, kind of like like salt and water. Yeah. You can have two things. You mix them together, one dissolves into the other. Yeah. Um, but separate it out again if you don't. In this case, uh, with water, you can dehydrate it, and the, the the salt water solution, you'll get salt again. Yeah, or if you keep adding salt, eventually it's not going to dissolve all the way in, and you'll you'll have solid salt again uh, within the water. And uh, the more carbon you add, the more carbide content there will be in the steel. Uh, and of course, if you add other alloying elements, like we mentioned, you know, if you add a whole bunch of vanadium, that vanadium's gonna gonna form with carbon and make its own vanadium carbide. So you add more and more carbon, you get more carbide. Uh, you you raise the temperature uh, that it takes to dissolve all of that carbide. So more carbide means more wear resistance, lower toughness, like we were saying. So that that creates the upper limit for how much carbon you can put in is how much will be dissolved into the iron. Yeah. And so for simple steels like a 1095, it's got 0.95% carbon uh, in the bulk steel. And if you heat that over whatever it is, 1600 degrees or something, then all of that carbon will be in solution, we call it. Uh, so you started out with a bunch of carbide and almost no carbon dissolved into the the iron matrix, we can call it. Uh, but if you heat it up very hot, then you'll you'll start to dissolve those carbides and the carbon will go into the the iron structure. So carbon's a very small atom. Uh, it's called an interstitial, meaning it's in between the iron atoms. So the carbon is so small that it can fit in between the iron atoms. So the those carbides dissolve. Uh, which allows the carbon to enter uh, the steel matrix so that when you quench it, you you lock in uh, that carbon and increase the strength of the steel. Can you add alloying compounds that increase the the amount that the car- of carbon that will dissolve, or is that kind of a fixed uh, a fixed number? Uh, yeah, mostly your maximum amount of carbon that can be in the matrix is your bulk carbon content. So if it's a 1050 steel with 0.5% carbon, that's how much you can get into solution. Uh, And then usually adding alloying elements, if anything, will only reduce that number. Uh, So for example, you have a CPM 154. We'll just keep using that steel uh, because of the fans here on the podcast. Uh, It's yeah, and it's got a little over 1% 
carbon in the steel, but you're not going to dissolve all of your carbide. You're going to leave some carbide in there for wear resistance. So you, you heat it up to a temperature where you dissolve, let's say, half of the carbide, and you'll get about 0.5% carbon in solution because uh, that'll get you the hardness that you want and also leave enough carbide left over to get you the extra wear resistance and edge retention that you're looking for. So in that case, the the extra carbon is intended to not be absor- absorbed uh, so that that structure stays in the steel? Correct. And, okay. and that's true even of something like 1095. So with 1095, you'll be putting something like 0.6, 0.7% carbon in solution to get you your high hardness. And the rest of that carbon is going to go to a simple iron carbide uh, for some wear resistance. Um, and the, the having the, the carbides that... that are, the carbon that's not absorbed is kind of like putting um, gravel in concrete. Yeah. That the, the, you get the very hard particles that are in the concrete and they will resist wear. Right. So even though the matrix around them is relatively soft, until you wear through those large particles, you're not going to wear through the material. Right. So the, those hard particles will slow down the wear of the overall steel. Uh, so the more carbide you have and the harder the carbides are, the better it will resist wear. And, and then that is also where things like vanadium come in. Right. So vanadium forms a really hard carbide uh, called vanadium carbide. <laughs> and uh, it, it's so hard that it, it's harder than many common abrasives. So you'll see sometimes people complain about sharpening or especially polishing knives with, with significant vanadium content because you're trying to use aluminum oxide sandpaper or abrasives or or sharpening stones and the the abrasive is not hard enough to wear the vanadium carbide but it also adds a lot to wear resistance for the same reason hand sanding s35vn is the bane of my existence uh-huh well you should try some 15v no no i'm good thanks i appreciate it <laughs> i mean i hate myself but i don't really hate myself uh-huh <laughs> um Although, let's touch a little bit on, because we touched on it, but I don't know if we really drove the point home, on the advantage of the size of the carbides. Okay. Uh, In short, the advantage of a small versus a large carbide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a, a small carbide is a lot better for toughness. So the bigger the carbide is, the easier it is to fracture the carbide itself or uh, the the carbide steel interface, it'll crack there. So the more carbide there is, the bigger the carbides are, uh, the easier it is to initiate a crack. Uh, so, you know, you, you're chopping something hard or, you know, impacting or stressing the edge of a knife in some way. And uh, if you have big carbides, then the, the stress required, the load required for uh, initiating a crack is much lower if those carbides are big. Uh, now, this is a concern uh, with with certain steels. So the low alloy steels uh, that have uh, very little alloying elements added to them, it's pretty easy to manage the size of the carbides because, uh, like I mentioned, they'll dissolve at forging temperatures. Uh, and so you can get them to reform at lower temperatures where they will stay small. Uh, now, when you have a, a high alloy steel, like a stainless steel, for example, uh, those carbides are forming as the steel solidifies you know, at really, really high temperatures. 2,800 degrees. Yeah, higher than, than two, 
higher than 2000 degrees, you know, something like 2,500 degrees or something Fahrenheit. Uh, And, and so they're stable up to that melting temperature because they're forming literally in the liquid steel. Wow. Uh, And so they, they can grow pretty large, uh, especially in the solidified ingot. And so, you know, the steel will then be forged and worked uh, by the steel company and they'll break up those carbides and make them smaller. But, you know, they're still going to be bigger than a low alloy steel where they're getting those carbides to reform at something like 1200 degrees or 1500 degrees, for example. And a low alloy would be like 1084 or a simple, right? a low carbon, simple steel. Yeah, it doesn't have to be low carbon, just low in in alloy, you know, so we'll say less than 5% alloying additions like chromium or molybdenum or vanadium. You know, so steels like 1095, 1084, 5200, 01, L6, Crew Forge V, you know, those kind of steels. Uh, so it's a lot easier to manage the carbide size in those steels. And this is part of why stainless steel had a reputation for having poor toughness compared with carbon steels, because those carbides can get pretty large. And that would explain the edge retention issue as well, or what? Yeah, so the the hard carbides can can contribute to to wear resistance, and when you are slicing with a knife, uh, you're usually losing sharpness due to wear of the edge. So increased wear resistance means uh, better edge retention. Now, if your knife is chipping or microchipping, then you need to have increased toughness or a more obtuse edge angle. And microchipping would be the, the, the large carbides breaking out. Right. Uh, or, or making it easier for cracks to form. And when those cracks link up, then, then you get a chip of the steel. You know, there, there are different mechanisms that, that can happen. And a, a very small level of, of the, a level you won't see with the naked eye. Yeah, not necessarily. Uh, so you you might feel it with your fingers, like, oh, there's a dull spot here, or, you know, you pull out a loop and you can see little chips in the edge. Uh, but yeah, that microchipping can occur. So, so in general, if you're comparing a high alloy steel, like a stainless to a low alloy steel, you'll get better edge retention just due to the wear resistance. But uh, if you're you're cutting hard materials or something that's leading to chipping, then you might get better edge retention from from the low alloy steel, mm. uh, but those those carbides will will add to your wear resistance. So you know if you if you go back to the seventies and eighties when there's battles between forging bladesmiths with low alloy steels uh, versus stock removal makers that are promoting four forty C or one fifty four CM or ATS thirty four, uh, you know they're they're kind of talking past each other with what they care about. So the stock removal makers will be promoting how they have stainless steels and how their steels will hold an edge a long time, and the the forging bladesmiths will be talking about how superior their toughness is or how their specialized forging practices lead to edge retention just as good or better than the stainless steels. And uh, you know, not all of the statements they make will be true, of course, but you know they will focus on different things. In both cases, they're trying to protect their own business, mm-hmm. which I don't fault them for. I mean, we all know stock removal is vastly superior, but I, I do not fault either. Either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Both Dan and I mainly do stock removal. Uh, don't really have I haven't forged at all. Dan's done a little bit. I I started forging and then moved to stock removal, and uh, even Fowler. He's got one of the best 
perspectives on stock removal versus forging because he is I'm pretty sure he's a journeyman about uh, working on becoming a master ABS, but he also does stock removal. And his state is, um, I forge blades because I like hitting stuff with hammers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I should say a couple things about forging, uh, because it probably has sounded a couple times like I am disparaging forging bladesmiths. Mostly, I'm just trying to to uh, talk about the differences in perspective and and differences in how you might work with steel and how you think about it. Uh, but you know, for for one thing, my dad forged Damascus. You know, that was his business. Yeah. So I saw lots of forging, but my father was also primarily a stock removal maker. Uh, so e- even though he is a skilled forger of of both Damascus and knives. He prefers to make knives with stock removal. I have a an article on forging versus stock removal, and, and I had a similar conclusion uh, that the performance benefits to forging uh, are small and in many cases non-existent. Uh, but what should dictate whether you are a forging or a stock removal maker is which one you prefer to do. Uh, so, you know, if you enjoy, uh, you know, working with a forge or swinging a hammer, uh, if you like traditional methods of making knives, for example, uh, if you want to make Damascus, uh, those are all examples of good reasons to forge. Uh, if you think you're going to make knives that cut twice as long or are twice as hard to break, then I, I think you're you're looking into forging for the wrong reasons, probably. The, the two things I've kind of took home is the artistry and forging is there's no comparison. There is, there's room for artistry and expression. It's not technically possible with stock removal. The, the forging guys can do some things that are just stunning visually. And for a long time, especially, you know, forge welded steels were vastly superior to anything that was on the market, but technology has caught up with that. It's taken thousands of years, but some of the homogeneous steels have now overtaken what forge welding steels can do. Yeah, it's it's been a long time since you needed to to forge weld anything. Um, you know, steel's been pretty good for all of my lifetime and and well before. Uh, you know, Damascus is is an art form, uh, and you can forge weld steels to to get certain properties or or appearances, you know, for example, you can make laminated steel like San Mai, uh, you know, which, which gives you, you know, either stainless sides or softer steel on the sides. And, and so you can achieve different sets of properties that way. Uh, but you don't need to, to work steel or make pattern welded steel or make woot steel to, to have good steel. Yeah. Um, and that's been true in our lifetimes, but mm-hmm. In metallurgical history, our lifetimes are the the thickness of a blade of grass. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of momentum that it it, it is slow to turn that much mass. Mm-hmm. The, the things that have been true for thousands of years are starting to be not true just in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I've had a good time for my website. I've written several articles on the history of different steels that are common in knives or were common in knives. And that's been a lot of fun because it was not something I was ever taught in materials or metallurgy school. Uh, you know, engineers are mostly focused on 
you know, how to engineer things today and a little bit less on how we got here. And recorded history can also be kind of poor. Uh, if, if you just try to look up how different knife steels were developed or where they came from or tool steels or stainless steels, uh, for certain steels, there will be articles on them, you know, like early stainless steels, you can find books or articles or, uh, the development of the earliest high speed steel, you can find some articles on, but you, you can Google how how 440C was developed and you're not going to come up with a single thing. So uh, it, it, it's been a fun research challenge trying to find the history of those deals and the metallurgists that developed them and how they did it. Well, and some of that is lost. The, the Wright brothers, we know that they used an internal combustion engine, but nobody pays attention to what was then the cutting edge alloys that went into that engine block so that it was light enough to function as an airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some of it you can track down in patents, or maybe they published a journal article, you know, announcing a new steel product and and who came up with it. But there are definitely some things that are lost. You know, steels became popular, and nobody knows where it came from. Um, we will. There's absolutely at least one, if not two, follow up shows to this because we could really dig deep on a couple of things. But I, if you don't mind, I'd like to touch a little bit on how grain and carbide structures can affect edge retention just as okay uh, this is something we could do an entire show on but if we could just kind of get a uh, an introductory level over the top to kind of set up for a follow-up show okay especially as things have changed as as alloys have gotten more complicated here in in our lifetime mm-hmm. so uh you know, edge retention can can describe different things. If we speak about it generically, you know, we mean the ability of the edge to retain sharpness. So, you know, cutting more material while maintaining a higher level of sharpness. And uh, it's a relatively complex issue. For one, there are a range of different ways that an edge can lose sharpness. You know, you can get chipping or microchipping. You can have an edge roll or deforms. Uh, You can get uh, an edge that wears, which will be what I talk about primarily in this context. Uh, you can have an edge corrode. You know, if you're you're cutting very acidic materials or cutting around a lot of salt water, you know, corrosion might be your primary uh, mechanism by which you're losing sharpness. And corrosion can be just atmospheric oxidation, right? Uh, so you know, there, there's these different failure modes uh, for an edge, and it, it depends on what environment you're in, what what you're cutting and what your edge looks like and how the user is using the knife. You know, for a guy that's really rough on a knife, he's probably going to be rolling or chipping out his edge. Uh, and and the edge geometry matters most of all, especially how thick the edge is and at what angle it's sharpened at. So the, the thinner the edge is and the lower angle sharpening that you have on it, the more acute the edge is, uh, the easier it is to chip or roll. Uh, but that edge will also cut better. Uh, the the literal cutting ability of the knife will be superior. You know, e- even at equivalent sharpness with a thin edge versus a thick edge, the thin edge will cut better. Yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll still have the same level of sharpness, but the thinner knife will cut through things with less force. A scalpel has a very high grind, whereas a chopping implement may have a lower grind because you're balancing cutting and durability. Right. 
it's not having to move as much material out of the way to get through whatever it is trying to cut. Mm-hmm. And and so for for any given application, as thin as you can go without chipping or rolling or corrosion, the longer the edge is going to last. And so it depends on what you're cutting and who's using the knife. Uh, but you want to go as thin as you can. It'll cut better and it'll cut longer. Uh, so if you have a chopping knife, like you said, you usually want something that's a bit more obtuse because uh, edge wear is not that much of a concern when you're chopping. Uh, but you are very concerned about about edge deformation or chipping. Uh, and when you're making fine slicing knives, you want to go as thin as you can, pretty much. Uh, so that that's the edge geometry component of it. Uh, you know, you'll see see cut tests where people take two different knives. Uh, one is in a super high high wear resistant steel that they expect to cut a long time, but it's in a, a thick folder, uh, and then they'll compare it against a really thin knife in in what they call a lower end steel with lower wear resistance. But it'll cut a lot longer just because of the edge geometry. So, uh, e- even though I'm a metallurgist, we have to be careful to to not focus only on steel because it's not all about steel. Physics first. Yeah, so you know, we're we're talking about knife engineering as a whole, uh, not just the metallurgy. And you know, you want your your steel and your heat treatment and your geometry of the blade all to work in tandem to be optimized for your application. Assuming the blade geometry is comparable, or, or we'll say, assuming you have the same blade angle, mm-hmm. um, at proper heat treat in in both examples. Um, how is your your grain structure and your carbides going to affect edge retention? Okay, the grain structure will largely not affect it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The only caveat to that is if you're losing your edge to chipping because a finer grain size can improve toughness. So if you're losing an edge to chipping rather than wear, then the grain structure can affect it. Otherwise, refining your grain is not going to lead to to improvements in in edge retention. So, if we focus on edge wear, you know, we've made the the edge strong enough where it's not not losing sharpness to deformation or chipping. Then we're in wear, and and grain size largely does not affect wear. Uh, sometimes making the grain finer will make the the steel stronger, which again would help with with rolling. And it would also uh, make the steel harder and a little bit more difficult to wear. Uh, but, you know, we're quenching knife steel to martensite where it's already very, very strong. So refining grain uh, leads to pretty small improvements in strength. So uh, in general, refining your grain size not going to improve your, your slicing edge retention when you're in a wear mode. Uh, now, Carbides, however, are very important for edge retention uh, because when you've got a whole bunch of hard carbides in there, then it resists wear much better. Uh, so this is why your 15V is very difficult to hand sand because it's got 15% vanadium in there and also resultingly 23% vanadium carbide. And those carbides are very hard and well distributed from the powder metallurgy production technology. And that edge will cut a really long time uh, if it's in an appropriate geometry for its use where you are wearing away the edge. That's too many wears in that sentence. So I hope it still made sense. So more carbides and harder carbides means the edge stays sharp longer just because it takes longer to wear away 
that edge. So which we're talking about a lot with the geometry, but uh, I remember a Gillette commercial way back in the day saying that they had the sharpest steel known to man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always thought that was pretty funny because I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty, uh, all the material sheets I've ever seen, it's not had sharp or uh, sharpness as a material property. Be, be careful with some of the, the stuff that's out there when you're, when you're talking to different makers and stuff for trying to relate it to how they do their steel. Yeah. And, and I haven't seen really big differences in steels in terms of how sharp they can get. Uh, even a steel with a pretty uh, coarse carbide structure can still get really uh, sharp. Uh, but th- there's a couple complications. One is that when you're sharpening, you can get carbides that break out as you're sharpening, especially with large carbide steels. And I think that tends to increase the time for, for sharpening. Uh, it, it's on a fine enough scale that it may not be noticed unless with controlled testing of some kind. Uh, it, but I haven't done uh, enough tests at really high levels of sharpness. You know, maybe when you're you're polishing to quarter micron, you know, diamond paste, then the differences start to come out. But e- even relatively coarse carbide steels can get really sharp. There are other material properties that can affect your your sharpenability, like how difficult it is to remove a burr or a how how ragged or rough the edge comes out. Uh, uh, so softer steels are more difficult to remove a burr on, and and they don't sharpen as clean as a harder steel. Uh, clean's not a good technical term, but basically, harder steel likes to get sharp better than soft steel. A, a harder, finer edge. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, a soft steel, you know, soft for knife steel, you know, something in the low 50s Rockwell, th- those steels can get plenty sharp, but they, they don't come up as, as crisp and nice as a, as a harder steel. Uh, so the hard steel can be more challenging to, to grind away the material to get to your edge. But in terms of getting it nice and sharp, uh, harder tends to be better. Another factor, which which might be too complex to get into here. Uh, well, it's not that complicated, but we'd have to go on a tangent to to get there. Is retained austenite content. So, if you have a high retained austenite content, which is dictated by your heat treatment and and the composition of the steel, uh, high retained austenite means it's more difficult to remove a burr. You know, a lot of sharpening is first setting your your edge by grinding away material to form a triangle, uh, but also getting that burr off and sometimes getting the burr off is more challenging than just grinding it down to that apex. So is that because the, the higher hardness steels that burr wants to kind of break off easier than being a little more ductile at a lower hardness? Yeah, I think that is part of it. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen really good studies on it. You know, there's, there's small studies where they find that fact that softer steel was more challenging to deburr or didn't get as sharp or that high retained austenite led to more difficult burr removal. But you know, you're talking about such fine scales, looking at the mechanisms by which everything is happening is pretty hard. And, you know, there, there's a couple people here or there that have, have really taken good images of edges, but it's not a huge area of study that's really popular. So I think there's more to be found there for sure. And at some point you get into what's laboratory true versus what's in the field true. Yeah, I, I, I think there's some of that. Uh, so, you know, for the edge retention experiments that I've been doing lately, 
uh, I had to deal with a lot of burr removal stuff. Uh, I, I was using sharpening stone that was really good on on every steel. It it I could grind steels that were really high wear resistance, no problem. Uh, but then when it came to getting that burr off, some of the steels were just really tenacious and really annoying. Just it, it would not get sharp, even though I knew that I had ground it to that, you know, triangle shape. Just that burr did not want to come off. And so I could not get a good, clean, sharp edge. And so, you know, burr removal can be a real challenge. So, you know, if you're trying to predict sharpenability just based on how wear resistant the steel is, that that's not always the limiting factor. And so we were talking a lot about hardness uh, in one of your articles. I, I love how you related it to the the megapixels and uh, camera. I think as we've been talking about that hardness is one of the many factors in toughness and corrosion resistance and edge retention and wear resistance are all things that you're trying to balance all at the same time. Yeah, so the reason why I like the megapixels analogy, you know, I was trying to tell a bit of a joke to to get people to click on the article, of course, but I do think that there's some good similarities there. Uh, the the megapixels battles have died off a little bit. They returned some in, in the smartphone era, but even that's kind of gone away. Uh, but in the mid-2000s or so, if you ever wanted to buy a new dig- fancy digital camera, it was all about the megapixels. And so you'd look at all these cameras in your catalog and you'd see you know, the five megapixel camera and the eight megapixel camera. And you're like, oh, why do I want this junky five megapixel camera? I can get eight megapixels, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the issue is that it's just one number and it's it's the one that they can advertise. So it's the one that they focus on. And the easiest one to affect. Yeah, so instead, what matters more with a camera, I'm not a big camera person, but, you know, the quality of the lens, the quality of the sensor uh, the size of the sensor, you know, uh, the attributes of the lens, those are way, way, way more important than how many raw megapixels it's collecting. And uh, to some extent, it's it's the same with hardness. So does hardness matter? Yes, it, it matters. It, it predicts behavior in certain ways. Uh, but if you're just focused on hardness, then you're missing a broader picture. Mm-hmm. So and and hardness a lot of times is one of the main specs on the sheet. So, you know, you're looking at the knife and it tells you what steel is in it and what the hardness is. And that's what's on the spec sheet. Yeah. And there's a lot of other things uh, that aren't on there. Yeah. How to get, how to get to those different hardnesses, what what temperatures to go to, uh, if you do cryogenic treatment or not. Back in the days of simple carbon steel, hardness it really kind of came down to steel was hard and it would take a really keen edge and it would mm-hmm. wear or it was soft and it wouldn't, but that doesn't really allow for the modern, uh, the modern alloys that are available now. That's one of those things that your grandfather was absolutely right when he focused on hardness, but times have changed. It's more than just hardness now. Yeah. I mean, if, if you have a, a simple carbon steel, like you said, uh, you know, where you set that hardness is the main thing affecting your properties. You know, you can go higher in hardness and get better edge retention or lower in hardness and get better toughness. And and that's your that's your main lever that you're dealing with. Uh, but when, when you're looking at this vast array of steels, of which there's a lot of misinformation, which, again, is is how hardness ends up being the only spec on the spec sheet there's just a lot of other factors. So, you know, we were talking about a really high wear resistance steel like 10V or 15V or, or you know, S35VN is pretty wear resistant. 
and it, it gets that way through all of its hard carbides. So if you have a 61 Rockwell S35VN, it resists edge wear much better than a 1095 steel, even if it's at 65 or 66 Rockwell instead. So there's different ways of heat treating a given steel to get to that hardness. Uh, hardness is not the only thing dictating the toughness or, or the edge retention. So just like edge retention, we have different steels for, for toughness. So if we have 3V or, or 15N20 or 5160, something high in toughness, at 62 Rockwell, it's still going to be much tougher than, than our 15V, even if it's at 50 Rockwell. Uh, just because it has so much carbide in it that it it greatly reduces its toughness. And making it softer is is not going to make it reach the high toughness levels of a steel that is better optimized for that property. And we, we've been using the term toughness a lot tonight. Just to clarify, how for the purpose of this conversation about about knives, how are we defining toughness? Yeah, so I gave a really simple definition earlier in our conversation where I just said it's resistance to breaking or fracture. Uh, and and so, you know, that's kind of our simple starting point. There's a lot of definitions of toughness, which, which can end up maybe confusing the issue more. Uh, but one basic measure of toughness that you'll see in data sheets for different steels is uh, impact toughness. So what they'll do is they have a big hammer on a pendulum. And so you raise the arm of the pendulum up high and uh, you hit the lever and let it drop and it'll, it'll, it'll drop down and rise on the other side and reach basically the same height on your swinging pendulum. And it'll go back and forth and slowly slow down due to friction. Uh, now, if you raise that, that pendulum up with the heavy hammer and you put a steel at the bottom of the machine, so the hammer will hit the piece of steel at the bottom. So it'll pass through that and break the steel and it won't rise as high on the other side because of the energy that's absorbed uh, by the piece of steel. Uh, and so that energy that's absorbed by the steel is the energy that was required to break that piece in half. And different steels will require different levels of energy. Uh, you know, heat treated in different ways or processed in different ways will also affect that that energy. And so the the amount of energy that the steel could take is is what what energy was necessary for breaking it. So the higher that energy is, the higher the toughness of the steel. And uh, for a given edge geometry, uh, when we are are impacting an edge, you know, hitting something hard and fast with a knife. Uh, and it's chipping, and that is controlled by toughness. So if we have a low toughness steel, it'll be easier to chip that knife. Now, again, edge geometry is very important. If you uh, make an edge uh, thick enough or obtuse enough, you know, you can have a pretty brittle steel in there, and, and the knife can survive some pretty amazing abuse. If you take a high toughness steel then and do the same thing, uh, but it's very thin edge, then it'll still chip. Then, then the other factor is is strength and and hardness. So this is really where where hardness predicts your behavior, and that is an edge rolling. Uh, so with very thin edges, a lot of times they won't chip, especially in a high toughness, high ductility steel. They will instead roll or deform. Uh, and so a, a thin edge requires not just good toughness in a steel, but also high strength and high hardness. And so getting that that balancing act to have really good cutting thin knives is is hard because you need a tough steel 
and it's got to be high hardness and increasing the hardness usually drops the toughness. So it, if you want to make really thin, really good cutting knives for, for the connoisseur knife buyer who knows how to use a, a thin knife well, uh, you gotta, you gotta be on top of your game for heat treatment and steel selection. So, and where, where's one of the, the best places to go to compare all these different knife steels that actually use the same, same methods? <laughs> well, it's a good setup, uh, but <laughs> first we'll give a little bit of background. So in the past, uh, to get toughness information on steels, you had to go to the steel manufacturer and they'd have data sheets with certain information in them. Uh, but you can only compare toughness between the steels that are produced by that steel manufacturer. You know, they're not comparing their steel products to to competitors generally. And then even if you you know, uh, you know, good comparisons from the steel manufacturer, you'll go to your data sheet and not find any toughness information. So, you know, if you go to the M390 data sheet, you know, there's no toughness in there or the LMAX data sheet or. Or you'll you'll look at the S30V data sheet and it says transverse toughness is 10 foot pounds. And then you'll look at the S90V data sheet and it says longitudinal toughness is 18 foot pounds. And you say, well, how do those compare? I have no idea. And the, the data sheet doesn't tell you. And every steel manufacturer uses a different type of toughness test. So, uh, you know, Crucible uses a, a C-notch specimen, which is just a shape of a notch that they put and the steel specimen that's broken with the hammer on the pendulum. And then Udahom uh, will use an IZOD impact test, uh, which is a little bit different orientation, but still uh, an impact test with a big hammer. Uh, so you can't even compare the, the results from the different manufacturers when you can find them. Uh, so uh, all of this lead up to say, for knife steel nerds, we've done a bunch of testing across all different steel manufacturers with one one given specimen so that all of the the toughness numbers can be compared uh, for the different steel products. And that's been really exciting because, uh, you know, my dad used a lot of AEBL in Damascus, for example, and we just could not convince anyone that AEBL was a steel worth using. Uh, Its reputation has grown a lot over the past decade or maybe a little bit longer, in part because of higher availability, but also just more guys uh, using it and trying it and and seeing how how good it is, but uh, there were never any toughness data on AEBL. I like that it seems to take a really fine edge. It cuts very well, and it's far less expensive to machine than some of the particle steels. Mm-hmm. Its wear resistance is relatively low, so it is easy to grind and finish. Um, and it, its toughness is really really high, especially for a stainless steel. And so that's one of the things you can see with the toughness experiments that we've done is, you know, oh, this steel that I thought was really junky because it had low uh, or medium edge retention, its toughness is really high. So, you know, I can select these steels based on the properties that I'm looking for, you know, balancing things like toughness versus edge retention. AEBL, in my mind, is a really good bang for the buck steel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and, And, you know, there's all these low alloy steels like, O one or 1095 or 52100 that that have a perfectly fine reputation for edge retention, uh, and they are no more wear resistant than AEBL. But uh, for some reason, among stainless steel users, sometimes they they're more geared towards offering something with high wear resistance. Uh, but AEBL offers the high toughness and fine microstructure that you get from from those low alloy steels, but in a stainless. So it definitely has its uses and. 
uh, like you said, it's easy to work with and inexpensive. So, a lot of my chefs like it because it's easy to sharpen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's great for kitchen knives. Obviously, it's designed for razors. It's great for those. Uh, it's good for high toughness applications. It's good for um, uh, it's good for fine cutting knives because you can heat treat it pretty hard and it maintains high toughness. So, uh, for certain applications, ABL is, is great. If you're looking for the ultra in wear resistance, then there are other steels to look at. I like to compare that AEBL is a Mustang or Camaro. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want a Ferrari, then we can get you a Ferrari, but everything that comes with that. Yeah. But if you want something, just get in and go. AEBL is a solid steel. Yeah. And And I'm sorry, I didn't on a tangent. <laughs> <clears throat> well, and because it's cheap and easy to work with, it's good for beginners to start with, too. So ABL is good for a wide range of things. I actually just uh, got some in to uh, make some some different knives out of, so I'm, I'm excited to try it for the first time. Maybe you'll like it even better than CPM 154. Hey, hey, hey. No <laughs> room for talk on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So, uh, are there any other uh, upcoming projects that you want to want to plug or uh, tell us about? What things to to look for on the coming from the knife steel nerds? Uh, well, the big one that just came out was a giant study we did on a catcher machine. Uh, so, a catcher machine is is one test of of edge retention. It's basically the only standardized edge retention tester that is available. It's extremely expensive. So, I was able to get it uh, through consulting. I I asked them if they would pay me in an old broken down edge retention tester instead of with money. And they said that sounded like a great idea. Uh, so I got this catcher edge retention tester and we did a really big study on it. Uh, we we made 57 knives from scratch, uh, myself and Sean Houston, a, a knife maker friend of mine. Uh, we used 48 different steels. Uh, all of the knives had the same design, so there was no change in edge geometry. Uh, ground and sharpen the same way. Uh, uh, a few of the steels we did heat different heat treatments on to look at a couple different heat treatment variables, like whether cryo improved edge retention or how much hardness affected the edge retention on this test. Uh, we also looked at a low versus high temperature temper, which we didn't really discuss in this podcast, but there are two different regimes you can temper in a low regime, like below 700 degrees. So a common temper might be 400 degrees Fahrenheit or a high temperature regime. So tempering at something like a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. So we compared those two things and yeah, 48 different steels. So we could look at a a general ranking uh, of all the different steels in terms of how well they resist edge wear. Uh, So that was published just a few days ago. Uh, That was a a really time consuming, difficult project, uh, but it's been very rewarding. It's been a very uh, popular article. The response has been very positive. So lots of people excited about uh, seeing a, a controlled test where we compared all these different steels. Because uh, if, if you Google steel rankings on things and look at the ratings for edge retention, uh, every article rates everything completely differently because it's all based on on rumors and biases of different people and what knife companies they like or steels they've heard good things about. And uh, they're just not based on any experiments. What I loved is the repeatability and that you used same blade angle, same thickness at the spine. It, it was a very controlled experiment rather than having one person doing test at, at, with a three-degree edge and one person doing test at a 12-degree edge. 
Yeah, you know, that's fine if you're looking at end knives. You know, I, I want to know which knife will cut longer. So I'm going to do this test to, to make a recommendation. But uh, when it comes to, to looking at the steel itself and figuring out the general steel properties and, and you know, making recommendations about steel choice for different applications, you've really got to narrow down your variables. And the catcher test isn't perfect. And that was revealed to some extent in this test. A lot of the things I knew before you know, there's not any really inherent problems with the test. Uh, but for example, low alloy steels with different levels of iron carbide didn't really show up at different levels of edge retention in the test. Uh, and I, I think that's because of the sand abrasive that is in the cardstock that you cut in the test. So mm-hmm. uh, one thing I'll be exploring in the future is using the same size of test media so it's it's basically just a paper stock that they put 5% sand throughout to uh, wear the edge faster. So I want to try that same test with paper without sand uh, to see if that reveals something a little bit different. And like we were discussing with different failure modes for edge loss, you know, there's different ways you can lose sharpness on an edge. And this is just one measure of it. So it, it's a mistake to look at one test and rank all of your steels that way. Uh, I do see sometimes too much focus on edge retention and I knew that this article would be very popular or the research would be popular just because edge retention is such a popular subject at the expense of others like toughness sometimes. Uh, but, you know, people want what they want. So. Well, and the, what I was really impressed by is the repeatability, the control mm-hmm. of as many variables as possible. Yeah, that, that, that was the intention. And that I appreciate because once you start controlling the variables, then I can start picking the information that that is a- applicable to what I'm doing. Yeah, very cool. Anything else going uh, after the after that? Anything else oh. you want to tease or? Well, I just spent four months on that, and now you're asking me what I'm going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you said you said you had a whole long list of, of things you had on the the chopping block. Yeah, an- another is that I'm working on a book. Uh, I'm on my second draft now. I'm hoping that'll come out in a few months. Uh, The website's getting a little ungainly uh, because there's just tens of articles on there. They're all thousands of words. So, uh, you know, someone coming to KnifeStillNerds.com now, it can be a little bit overwhelming just because there's all these articles on individual topics, but not a really easy way to cover everything in kind of a, a whole, you know, introducing concepts and building on them so that you you understand everything that we're, we're trying to discuss because my articles, a lot of times I say, you know, oh, we heat treated this to different hardnesses. If you want to know how heat treating works, then click on this article. If you want to know what hardness means, then click on this article. And so, you know, every other, every other statement I make, I'm linking to an article so you can know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So the, the book will be a little bit better than, for that. Uh, I'm also trying to get some some new knife steels developed. So those are also long-term projects uh, where nothing's really ready to announce. Uh, we're, we really don't even know what's going to work or not going to work at this stage. So you know, we've done some laboratory work on a steel for Alpha Knife Supply that looks promising, uh, but haven't made it in, in full production level yet. So we don't know how the end properties are going to look compared to doing laboratory scale experiments. So, you know, more toughness experiments, more edge retention experiments, got the book, trying to get steels developed. So, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of, a lot of work going on. There's definitely more that's going to come 
So I should probably plug my my Patreon while while we're on the subject of cost and and time. If, if you weren't weren't I was for just <laughs> dollars for two dollars. Yeah, yeah. So for, for example, this edge retention study uh, was about twelve grand, and so some of that came from my own consulting money. Some of it because I gave up consulting money uh, to get the edge retention tester instead of money, and then the rest of it came from Patreon supporters. Uh, so there's just no way I could justify spending this much money on on knife steel tests. You know, no matter how much I enjoy doing it, my wife would put her foot down at at some point about those thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Patreon money, all of it goes towards knife steel research. Uh, one time I did buy a lollipop for my daughter at Home Depot along with some screws I needed. Um, but otherwise, all of the money's gone towards uh you know, knife steel nerds. So if you want more, more knife steel research, like we've done with the toughness testing, the catcher testing, or all of the heat treatment articles and steel articles that, that we put out, then uh, come on Patreon. So the money's not, not for me, it's for you. You know, the, the money comes back into more steel research. And it's, it, it's very inexpensive. It's two to $10. Um, yeah, yeah. For $10, you get a mug. Yes. <laughs> um, and what you get out of it, especially, um, I really wish there had been a source like this when I was getting started because there was so much that I learned that was wrong that I then had to, to, re- to reteach myself. Mm-hmm. For, for guys getting started, this is an absolute investment to get some solid upfront information so you get a good foundation. Yeah. Um, I mean, I drank the Kool-Aid. I'll, I'll go ahead and remember. I, I I'm not just a customer. I'm also a member. <laughs> um, but yeah, especially for young knife makers, guys that are just getting started, I'm telling you, the couple of bucks you spend to get access to these articles will pay dividends, uh, both in the time you save learning it up front right the first time and just access to the getting the details. To your point about all the hyperlinks in an article, it's a situation where rather than just getting a term you don't really understand, you can dig deep and get that solid foundation to build on. Mm-hmm. Well, and I wish the source was available too. You know, when I when I was reading everything I could as a teenager or in college, you know, I I wanted something like this, so I I set out to to make it for everyone and. You know, when when I'm doing all these experiments, these are all things that I always wondered about. You know, which steel is tougher than this steel, and which steel can cut longer than that steel, and which steel has the best corrosion resistance. So, you know, I wanted to know the answers to all these questions. So, we have to have to do the experiments to figure it out. And one of the advantages when I realized I didn't know anything about metallurgy, a lot of the text I found, a lot of the sources I found were industrial sources. Mm-hmm. Understanding the understanding the processes behind making an engine block, mm-hmm. although that was legitimate metallurgical science, it no way applied to to st- to knife specific technology. Mm-hmm. And to have somewhere that has boiled it down to the, the blade specific is what I I think I appreciate most. Well, I I, I like that. Um, you know, I tried to make it as specific to knives as possible. Sometimes people will accuse me of still speaking in, in industrial heat treatment terms, but uh, sometimes 
there's a an evolution or a group think with certain knife makers where they think that steel needs to be heat treated or worked in a certain way. Uh, but, you know, the industrial way is just fine. Uh, but I, I also see sometimes guys are trying to get more more deep into metallurgy. You know, they're searching for journal articles on steel and they're coming up with stuff on on structural steels or on steel used in bridges or steel used in cars like I work on in my day job. And it just doesn't apply. You know, so you get lost in, in all this extra stuff that isn't relevant. So, uh, you know, everything I write is directly relevant to, to knives. I'm not going to talk about anything unless it's related to a knife. So maybe you get started in the article and you think, what does this have to do with anything? But I promise by the end, it's going to relate to knives. I'm, I'm brutally dyslexic in the number of times that I got halfway into a metallurgical article only to find out it had nothing to do with knives. Mm-hmm. I I, I don't need it. Mm-hmm. But that's my own issue. <laughs> you want to tell, uh, other than the Knife Steel Nerds website, where else can uh, people find you? Yeah, the other main place is is my Instagram, which is at Knife Steel Nerds. Uh, so, you know, the, the things I post there are a little bit different than go on the Patreon or, or the website. So the website is all like final articles. Uh, They're all ready to go and finalized. And uh, Patreon, you get those final articles uh, two or three days before they go on the final website. Uh, we also have our own discussions on Patreon. You also get regular updates. So if I get, you know, early experimental results, I put them on Patreon. If I'm debating between two different studies, then I'll post a poll to Patreon. Uh, and we'll have little little topics of discussion on there. And then Instagram is more, you know, pictures of like, oh, here's the steel I just got in. It's the new M398 or... Uh, you know, here's my dirty hands from all the sharpening these knives for edge retention tests and that kind of stuff. So if you like dirty hands, then go to Instagram. If you like early articles and discussions, go to Patreon. And if you want to read the final articles, go to KnifeSteelNerds.com. I remember seeing an Instagram video of you doing some uh, surface grinding workout. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> when you were gr- surface grinding a bunch of, I think it was impact samples. Yeah, so over the past few years, it's gotten more popular to have these surface grinding attachments for 2x72 grinders that are, of course, very common for knife makers. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they work okay. Uh, they're not perfect. Having a dedicated surface grinder is definitely superior. But I had a 2x72 grinder, and those attachments are not as much money or take up as much space as a full-size surface grinder. So I got one, and I've used it uh, constantly for making impact specimens or, you know, even just surface grinding all of those knives that were going to be used for the edge retention study. Uh, so I use the thing like crazy and it it just, it's a full body workout using that thing. Uh, there are some models that are, are horizontal for horizontal grinders and you can just move them back and forth, but the ones for a normal vertical orientation, you've got to pull that heavy, magnet with steel on top of it all the way up plus the the resistance of the friction of the belt and so you know i'm like i'm using a bowflex on this thing so i had my wife mm-hmm. come come film me uh, in a couple of funny poses where I, i'm trying to you know work out different parts of my upper body so that i look real ripped for the ladies on instagram <laughs> nice cool <laughs> Yeah, and when you all get right. the when you get the book done, make sure you uh, let us all know, and we'll make sure to do a post and make sure people know where to get the book and uh, how to uh, get that information. Yeah, I'll have to do my book tour to get everyone to go buy it. Yeah, and then hopefully we hopefully you can uh, do some some signed copies or something. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. 
Do you have any more any any more stuff you want to talk about, Dan or Larry? I do, but you made me promise to keep this a short episode. So I really feel at least two more follow up shows coming because uh, I, I feel like we can dive deep on a couple of things. Yeah, I'll come back whenever. Awesome. But in with my promise, we're going to keep this under two hours. I've, I've struggled with it, but I promised. So uh, we probably need to wrap it up. <laughs> All righty. You can stay in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. And uh, you can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Knife Perspective. And you can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and iHeartRadio. And you can get in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com. And, and it's Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And the uh, the slow response, Dan, at dogwoodcustomknives.com. And you can get in touch with me, Kyle Daly, Cage Daily Knives at cagedailyknives.com. And I'm Cage Daily Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And you can get in touch with me at Kyle at cagedailyknives.com for email or Kyle at knifeperspective.com. Uh, so if you have any, uh, any follow-up questions or things or uh, people that you want to uh, see and getting posted in the stories and stuff, uh, let us know. And I'll work on getting those posts up so that uh, other people know about some awesome makers. Thank you, Laren, again for being on the show. It's uh, great learning some more stuff about knife steel, and I'm excited about all the the work you've been doing. Yeah, this was fun. Cool. All right, thanks everybody, and uh, have a great evening. Say good night, Kyle. <laughs> good night, Kyle. Well, let's take it to the edge, cause that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Get to the point We're gonna talk about